Welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. I am your host, Juan Llamas Rodriguez. Today we are discussing alliance and resistance through sound and the music of MIA. Our guest is Dr. Ronak Kapadia. He's Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he is also affiliated faculty in Art History, Global Asian Studies, and Museum and Exhibition Studies. He's an interdisciplinary queer cultural theorist of race, war, security, and empire in the late 20th and early 21st century United States. His research is guided by the historical, materialist, and anti-racist thought of Black, Indigenous, and Third World Marxist feminists, and queers and trans people of color. He is the author of Insurgent Aesthetics, Security and the Queer Life of the Forever War, published by Duke University Press in 2019, and is at work on a new book about the critical potential of healing justice movements across multiple transnational sites of security, terror, and war titled Breathing in the Brown Queer Commons. He lives and works in Chicago. Ronak, welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. Thank you very much, Juan. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I want to start by asking you about these research interests. Um, what got you uh, excited in them? Why does this topic interest you? Why is it an important area for us to study? Um, so I would say that all of my scholarship is guided by the idea that contemporary visual and multimedia and expressive culture and art radically transform how we experience and interpret the world and can uncover intimate forms of feeling and sensation and evidence of state violence that have been repressed by dominant geopolitical or military perspectives. Uh, so my primary research is motivated by the problem of security, security both as a kind of political tool constitutive to the genesis of the modern US nation state and its settler colonial institutions, as well as security as a kind of collective affective state experienced mm -hmm. by racialized and gendered populations who differentially experience the brunt of state violence in the name of so-called state security. Right? Mm -hmm. And so throughout, I'm inspired by how critical ethnic studies, Asian American criticism, especially amplified by intersectional feminism and queer of color critique, are crucial to the study of our overlapping contemporary crises, including racist police violence, mass deportations, foreign wars, ecological chaos. And I try to engage these questions in my first book, which was published last year uh, that you mentioned, Insertion Aesthetics. And broadly, this book is about how contemporary visual and performance artists from the Arab, Muslim, and South Asian diasporas have contested the violent projects of US empire and the recent global war on terror in the greater Middle East through their art making. Um, so it explores the radical experiments, freedom dreams, and world making potential of contemporary art and aesthetics in the ongoing context of US war and empire. And so this piece, um, you know, this piece about MIA, Sonic Contagions, was the earliest germination of a lot of that thinking. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of the major goals of my work is, is that I'm trying to say that, you know, I, I want to offer not only a diagnosis of how neoliberal security and permanent war have constrained the dominant life worlds and accelerated human suffering for people all over the world via the atrocities of war and displacement, mm -hmm. but that they, these artworks also elucidate um, how we can sense otherwise, how we can offer these kinds of more disobedient and arresting ways of being in the world. And I think that's precisely right. what MIA is offering us. Great. So the article we're discussing today is called Sonic Contagions, Bird Flu, Bandung, and the Queer Cartographies of MIA. It was published in the Journal of Popular Music Studies, Volume 26, in 2014. Can you give us a brief 
history of how the essay began or the ideas sure, um, yeah. for it, um, and how did it change in the process of you of you writing? Yeah, so you know, as I mentioned, this is the first peer-reviewed journal article I ever wrote and published. And while it finally came out in the summer of 2014, it was first drafted as a seminar paper in my second year of graduate school in the spring of 2008 mm -hmm. in a critical race theory seminar taught by my late mentor, Jose Esteban Munoz. Mm -hmm. And so many iterations and revisions ensued, as you can imagine, lots of revisions on, on that earliest work. Um, and I was informed by post-colonial queer and feminist criticisms and their sort of reappropriations of the global decolonization struggles of the mid 20th century including in the work of my other mentor, Gayatri Gopinath, who's recently published a book about this work that she's called Un Unruly Visions. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, the moment of graduate school that I was in was about this sort of transnational turn in American studies, trying to think about the US and the world, um, trying to develop a more robust engagement with women of color, post-colonial feminist, and uh, queer of color critique. It was also shortly after the 50th anniversary of the Bandung Conference in Indonesia, mm -hmm. which I talk about in the article. And so this was a, a moment of thinking about comparison and relationality. So the idea of comparative ethnic studies, the idea of a critical ethnic studies, um, all the stuff around minor transnationalisms, around South-South exchange, around the what Lisa Lowe calls the intimacies of four continents. That was really very much um, at the forefront of my graduate experience. And so that's the context in which this article um, around MIA uh, was written. And it's also because I had a longstanding interest in thinking about South Asian diaspora culture and cultural production. And so I was searching for interesting in instances of that. Um, by now, of course, sound studies, comparative ethnic studies, empire studies, all of these fields are quite fast formations and, and much has changed mm -hmm. in the last decade plus since I first uh, wrote this article. So it's, it's exciting to sort of think about it and reflect back on that moment. Right, for sure. Um, and so the artist that you focus on is specifically MIA and all of these questions that you're bringing in, you map onto um, not only her work, but almost specifically this, this work on, on bird flu. Can we begin with a brief intro into your interest in MIA? Why, why was she a, a sort of fascinating art or interesting artist to, to think through these issues with? Yeah. So um, a little bit about MIA, maybe some background, right? Um, so MIA, um, missing in action. It, her actual name is Mathangi Maya Arupragasam. She was born in London to Sri Lankan Tamil parents and then quickly moved to Jaffna in northern Sri Lanka when she was six months old. Uh, and she spent the first decade of her life was marked by the kind of displacement caused by the Sri Lankan Civil War, which was a three decades long struggle between the dominant Sinhalese Buddhist majority in Sri Lanka and the ethnic Tamil Hindu minority in Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. um, and so that brutal civil war was eventually officially ended in 2009, uh, but the struggle for sovereignty for Tamil independence continues to this day. And so MIA is interesting in the sense that she's this British South Asian figure, Sri Lankan figure. She's a refugee, multiply displaced, first to southern India and then to the UK and then, and then displaced again to the United States. Um, she's somebody who um, first sort of burst on the scene um, as a visual artist and musician in the era of MySpace in the mid-2000s. <laughs> um, and some of those early um, 
works were sort of characterized by all of this incredible visual efflorescence, right? Like her early album art was just cotton candy glam and colorful. And I remember when I was first living in New York around the time of graduate school in the mid 2000s, seeing her perform in Central Park and being like, wow, who is this brown femme figure who is mixing mm -hmm. hip hop and chutney and soca and rap and um, all of these sort of musical traditions simultaneously. Um, so she was an outlier, right? And she's mm -hmm. absolutely an, an outlier both for um, American hip hop and rap, an outlier in the context of British Asian music in particular, which has a rich tradition and something to sort of unpack. Right. And then, you know, what was interesting to me think, to think through, like, here's this Sri Lankan Tamil, uh, you know, the other thing to know about Sri Lankan Tamils is that about a third of Sri Lankan Tamils live outside of Sri Lanka. So the diaspora right. in North America is extraordinarily robust and rich. And there's a lot of important political organizing and artistic work that happens within the Sri Lankan diaspora. But what's particularly interesting is that in the context of the South Asian diaspora studies, India usually is the hegemon, right? So we really think about India as the stand-in for South Asia. And one of the things I wanted to do in this article was to say, can we think South Asia through Sri Lanka? Can we displace right. the hegemonic presence of India um, and actually think about these more peripheral sites within the region and then mm -hmm. their diaspora formations? And of course, all the stuff around Tamil militancy and her father's complicated and vexed relationship to the LTTE, which is the liberation type uh, tigers of Tamil Elam, um, and all of those sort of patrilineal links to militant subnational resistance movements was mm -hmm. also interesting to me because this was the moment in which we were living through the Bush, to, Bush, you know, war on terror in the United States, and right. the discourse of terrorism was starting to permutate in interesting ways. And usually, when we talk about terrorism in the United States in this moment, it's about Islamic terrorism, right? It's not about the kinds of um, quote unquote terrorism of non state actors who fall outside of that narrative. And certainly in the context of the LTTE in Sri Lanka, that's another trajectory in which to understand terrorism. And so part of why MI is fascinating in that moment is that she emerges, she's talking about a kind of terrorist chic energy, insurgency, rebellion, but she's, uh, you know, relying on the kind of conflation between these different discourses in ways that are, I, I sort of wanted to tease out and unpack in the, in the, in the context of this essay. Right. And in the article, you you refer to this uh, relationship with um, her father's um, association with Tamil resistance. Right. But yeah. in talking about MIA, you you uh, sort of frame it as a fraught, um, ever changing aesthetic relation to Tamil resistance. Yeah. Um, and so what do you see with the potential and the pitfalls of her sort of evoking this radical resistance in, yeah. in her music? Yeah. So, you know, the, what I said in the essay is that, you know, the artist production team had clearly made a lot out of these kinds of alleged links to militant resistance groups, including the LTTE um, through his, through the father. Right. Um, and, you know, missing in action is a, is a, is a reference to that in the first place. Right. But I think that her work kind of expresses 
this profoundly contradictory way in which diasporic culture producers participate in radical resistance movements in the global South that by definition exceed the strict confines of the nation state. So, mm -hmm. you know, we have all of this scholarship now that has documented the centrality of diasporic affects and affiliations and organizing to the success of multiple mid-century independence movements and wars of liberation across the so-called darker nations, right? So everything from the Gother Party in the South Asian context, the Gother Party, which was based in San Francisco and on the West Coast of the United States that was formative for, um, for uh, you know, Indian independence struggles in the 1940s to the way that black freedom movements have been a, have a global dimension and have been, um, you know, and Black folks in the United States have been crucial to various solidarity struggles across around the third world region, right? So, you know, I think part of what I wanted to understand is how does MIA's very popular celebrity um, fit in relationship to that longer, older history of the mid 20th right. century struggle? And um, so I also wanted to say, can we include the case for the liberation of Tamil Elam, even though sovereignty had remained suspended and it's still foreclosed to this day, right? So the yeah. Tamil people in Sri Lanka are not yet free. Right? So I wanted to bracket all of the questions around the kind of violence of the LTTE as this militant nationalist subnationalist group. I wasn't trying to advocate a kind of pre-critical lines between MIA and that complex freedom movement, which is, you know, certainly uh, lots of books have been written about. But I was trying to get at the way that there is this romantic evocation of radical resistance struggles in the global south by diasporic and refugee subjects and right. that that is something worth paying attention to and thinking about it. And I call it a romantic evocation because I think even a cursory look at her body of work would reveal that there's nothing intrinsically radical or critically left about her affective politics, right? Mm -hmm. um, and she's also come under a lot of controversy and critique from Sri Lankan Tamils in the diaspora in North America who um, take issue with her calling herself the so-called unequivocal Western spokesperson for the Tamil humanitarian crisis in Sri Lanka. Right. And she's really kind of um, has a lot of frank and at times sort of untidy or sordid commentaries on the, on the kind of political terrain of her homeland in ways that have infuriated international human rights activists and government officials alike. And so she, um, and I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, there are very few Sri Lankans in the public sort of public arena in the West. And um, there's very limited space for discourse around these questions around Tamil insurgency or even the complexities of Sri Lanka's history. And so I think that MIA is doing this strange thing where she has to walk a fine line between trying to exercise her global platform as a politically informed, creative person um, and, and being an advocate for her native country and for, for Tamil people, but also simultaneously, you know, profiting off of a kind of provocateur, sound-bidden, uh, generic rebel outsider appeal. And so I think that contradiction right. is interesting, and it's partly why turning to cultural production is so useful, because it, um, we can mine those contradictions and tease them out and see and think about even the failure of her critical potentiality, right, as a, as a spokesperson is interesting for us to pay attention to because um, it speaks to, to the sort of limited and constrained ways in which in particular brown, femme, diasporic women get to enter into the public arena, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the key concept you introduce in this article is what you call queer cartographies. 
Could you explain to us where this concept comes from? Um, what do you see as significance? Who who are you drawing from? Which fields, which um, uh, thinkers yeah. have sort of inspired your thinking there? So what I say in the essay is that queer cartography is, is a theoretical strategy. So it's a reading practice to identify intimacies co that connect differently racialized populations across disparate affective sites. So in other words, queer cartography is a kind of method Mm -hmm. um, to do what postcolonial feminist scholar Ella Shohat has diagnosed, um, or to, to address what she's diagnosed as a kind of disciplinary and conceptual boundaries that continue to quarantine interconnected fields of inquiry. Um, and instead to place together often ghettoized histories, geographies, and discourses into politically and epistemologically synergetic relation. That's the quote from Shahad that I really love, you know, putting these things that mm -hmm. seem like they don't belong together in conversation and then rubbing them up against each other and seeing what emerges, right? right? And so part of what I'm doing with queer cartographies is I'm asking what kinds of relational maps of knowledge we need in order to illuminate and make audible these creative inter interventions that networks of diaspora cultural producers have produced within and across national boundaries. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the idea behind it undergirding the notion of queer cartographies is that we should, instead of having these kinds of food groups, right, of these silos where we, in ethnic studies in particular, where we have black studies over there and native studies over here and Latinx studies and Asian American mm -hmm. studies, and we think of those as disparate subjects, right? We should instead build scholarly models, methods, and frameworks that um, speak to the way that the world is lived, right? And the kind of relational right. intimacy across um, both spatial sites, but also temporal sites as well, right? Without flattening out the historical or geographical specificity of their content. Um, so part of what I'm trying to do with queer cartography is to say that this is about uh, prioritizing an inquiry into cross-racial affiliations and trans-colonial connectivities produced in the time of war, because war produces these unlikely kinds of intimacies as well, right? And so the scholarship behind this, there's two dynamic strands, I would say, of interdisciplinary scholarship behind queer cartographies. The first is all of the emergent work in post-national, interregional, transnational, and oceanic studies that has displaced the modern nation state as the primary sort of conceptual apparatus through which to look at the world, right? That's the one, um, you know, so thinking about circuits of movement and intimacies within, beyond, and below nation states. Right. The second idea of queer cartographies is the work in affect studies, which is about prioritizing relational or alternative modes of thinking about how people are connected in the world. So rather than um, the idea of identity and identity politics, the idea of affect is a little bit looser and it's about structures of feeling that connect seemingly disparate people together. And that's precisely what I'm trying to get at with uh, the concept of bird flu feelings, which also, also appears in the essay. So queer cartographies is the kind of reading practice and method through which I try to follow MIA as she moves through time and space, um, as she catches different kinds of sensibilities, different sounds, different um, communities, and brings that together in the space of the kind of audiotopic realm of sound in her work. Right. And it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, you're uh, developing a method for how to trace the movements, right? The circulations of um, the sounds that MIA is pulling from, the way her own music is uh, moving around the world and connecting these different, let's say, publics and mapping these different effective connections across, uh, across groups. 
but place remains an interesting aspect too, and an important aspect to to the kind of work that that she's doing. And in the the case of the bird flu video, there's the using the location of the Tamil Nadu fishing town is in itself significant. And as you also think through oceanic studies, thinking about uh, the Indian Ocean Rim as a as a way to think differently than than the nation state. Can, can you talk to us more about that? About thinking also the importance of place and how that had factors into your analysis too. This is so important because otherwise, I think queer cartography loses any of its tethering to groundedness, right? So, kind of, mm-hmm. how do you bring concrete material um, ascends to a concept mapping like queer right. cartographies? Um, one of the ways I try to do that is by looking at the music video and trying to read every aspect of the music video. And so, you know, in interviews, mm-hmm. I learned that um, the site of the of the video itself in southern India was not far from the Tamil refugee camps in Chennai, where uh, am I? and her family once lived and many people have sort of trafficked through um, and I, I mentioned that in order to underscore the material proximities of the kind of affective worlds that I'm discursively conjoining in the, in the, in the context of the essay but that MIA is what is doing as well through her music so the thing about um, this site in Chennai this fishing village right partly why I spend so much time in the essay talking about it is because this region experienced the devastating effects of the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, right? Which mm-hmm. was the deadliest tsunami on record. And as a lot of scholars and activists and humanitarians have demonstrated, that tsunami crisis exposed the deep connections between the diverse peoples of the Indian Ocean rim, right? So there was this massive displacement of ocean water triggered by a magnitude 9.2 earthquake off the northern coast of Sumatra. It killed more than a quarter million people, and it destroyed the livelihoods of untold more across Indonesia, Sri Lanka, India, Thailand, Somalia, Maldives, Malaysia, Burma, Tanzania, Bangladesh, Kenya, all these places that we don't necessarily think as being connected necessarily, right? But um, part of what's so compelling about thinking about the Indian Ocean Rim is that there is a centuries-long history of trade and traffic and contact of people and goods and commodities and ideas across this region. And it's an interregional arena, right? As Sujata Bose, the historian, puts it, um, right. that speaks both to the kind of shared risks and shared futures of different communities that are brought together by the sort of furious power of the natural world. And so I think it's curious that MIA would select this particularly laden site to record bird flu, right? Because it offers us this port of entry into theorizing the sustained conditions of both mutual vulnerability and interregional intimacy for diverse populations that are conjoined by the furious power of the natural world. And, you know, I think this is very much in keeping in lockstep with recent work in post-colonial and feminist and queer scholarship that has brought renewed attention to maritime spaces, to oceanic mm-hmm. spaces as allegories for highly unstable confluences of race and nationality and class and sexuality and gender as, as a kind of dense borderland site right, with cross currents yeah. that transmit historical consciousness across space and time and you know the notion of borderlands of course comes through in the work of scholarship by paul gilroy and gloria anzaldua in the 90s mm-hmm. to um, a whole range of new scholars in the 21st century who've kind of taken up that question to think about the kind of unique perils and possibilities of ocean water um, so part of what i'm trying to say is that isn't it interesting that mia has released her present-day bird flu sound 
in those affective worlds that are both ancient and futurial, right? Um, mm -hmm. And the idea of interregional intimacy is not something just about the past, but it's about um, other ways of being connected in the world in the future. Yeah, and these these bird flu sounds, bird flu ceiling, uh, feelings, um, also do another sort of displacement, right? So, so one hand, uh, as you mentioned, when thinking about the South Asian context, it's usually India that is the hegemon, um, and you're trying to move away from that to also think about Sri Lanka. Yeah, um, and then in there's a lot in thinking about place. There's this focus on land, but moving to the ocean as this sort of unstable borderland is also a way to displace that. But then in thinking about virtual feelings, you're focusing on sound, mm -hmm. right? And so what does focusing on sound do for also thinking about ways to contradict the scopic or ways to think differently about these um, as you're doing in this article? Yeah, this is really funny because I was this was like a moment in graduate school, I was very deep into sense, sensory studies and the sound studies, which was still rather emergent at the moment. And I was really trying to displace the, the primacy of the visual and then, of course, I went on to write a book about visual culture and visual artists <laughs> and uh, completely dumped the, the conversation around sound and MIA for the book. But, um, you know, I think part of what I was trying to get at early on was, can we think about the unique role that sound plays in evoking affective bonds and alternative relational maps that MIA is clearly listening to and making audible in her music? Um, mm -hmm. Sound and music, we know, plays an extraordinarily important role in um, radical resistance movements and global decolonization struggles and ways of thinking about transnational solidarities, but that she seems particularly attuned to the kind of uncommon uncommon sonic culture that she was creating. And so I thought, you know what, we need to bracket the visual analysis and develop a kind of sonic analysis. And part of the idea there was also that we could actually get better conceptual clarity about what MIA was doing, why she was particularly contradictory and provocative, if we isolated sound and other modes of affective transmission that circumvent the visual field that might even contradict the scopic altogether, as you as you noted. And so, part right. of what I'm saying here is that turning a critical ear to MIA's music, you know, I want to argue that the sonic landscapes that she traverses allows us to locate affective signatures of several transcolonial solidarities left in her wake that we wouldn't get otherwise, right? And that the visual often is a stand-in that um, distracts us from some of these other modes of connection and connectivity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the things I, I like to do when opening a conversation about MIA is, especially with students who have only now first encountered their work, is ask them, what does this sound to you like? Or who does she remind yeah. you of? Or what are some connections? And in the activity, it's most often than not, is like different students will latch onto different sounds or will make connections with other artists that they know. And that's part of what um, I found so fascinating in that work is it, she is drawing these connections. And by drawing the connections, it means that wh whatever you're coming from, you are latching onto to some yeah. of that aspect, right? Yeah. And, you know, we always think of music as syncretic, like all music is syncretic. It's all, it's all about collaboration. It's about the sort of mm -hmm. um, bringing very rich traditions and conversation with each other. So the idea of borderlands and music, there's nothing particularly novel about MIA is not the first person to be doing this, this kind of thing, right? Uh, but then when when you first hear her work too, it's really cacophonous, right? There's so mm -hmm. many, there's so much clashing of sound. And I think for a lot of people, people who don't like listening to MIA, for example, you know, I've tried sharing this with my siblings and friends but around the time when I was writing this article, we we're like, yeah, I can't 
I can't get with that. Mm -hmm. I can't get with um, her music. I'm not down for it. It feels like a headache, right? It's because there's a kind of frenetic quality to her work. What I wanted to do was sort of slow that down and slow down the beat and do a, and prioritize a kind of active listening and think about my own sensory state in relationship to this kind of soundings, soundings that she was trying to produce. And then do the backstory to figure out what the research of like, why did she, um, you know, dub and record certain songs in the Caribbean versus South Asia versus the United States, like what that her own sort of complicated cartography was uh, mapped onto the music, right? And so some of that was accidental, some of that was certainly intentional. And I think that's partly what sound studies offers us. And of course the field of sound studies is huge at this point. But I think another important thing that it offers us, even for those of us who don't um, write about music or sound, is that it moves from the kind of theoretical optic from issues about representation and signification right. to perception and affect, right? To actually right. prioritize even biological processes of the body in the act of listening. And to remind us that sound analysis elicits not just representational demands, right? Of she is this South Asian diasporic subject and this is what she looks like and this is what she's offering, but yeah. that it also produces physiological questions about the affects of diverse soundings on the listening agent. And so it's a reminder that there's always a listener too, right? And that the listener's um, sort of affective sensory state is really crucial to experiencing the music and understanding it and theorizing it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One of the interesting uh, moves in the article um, towards the end is that you connect what you've been analyzing in MIA's, especially the bird flu uh, song, but in her work generally, to the 1955 Asian African Ca Conference in Bandung, right? Um, and use that moment to reflect back on what that conference has since meant, since meant for mm -hmm. post-colonial queer and feminist scholars. How do you see the the what ostensibly was in some ways a failed project from that conference, the retaking up mm -hmm. of that conference in recent work, and then how does that tie into mm -hmm. the sort of queer cartography method that you're yeah. trying to develop? So, you know, Bandung Conference in 1955, right, was this major um, international conference jointly organized by India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Burma, and hosted by Indonesia by Sukarno. It was this gathering of representatives from 29 newly sovereign nations. Um, and this, a lot of people have written, as you noted, about the legacy of Bandung internationalism, this idea that there was going to be a third world, uh, non-aligned structure for these newly decolonized nations that would reject the kind of superpower division of the global order of the world between the US and the USSR, right? So mm -hmm. that kind of uh, bipartite structure, there was this third way. And the, there, you know, a lot of people from Vijay Prashad to Gary Okahiro to Cynthia Young and Michael Denning and Robert Young have written about the idea of the third world. It was not a place, but an idea. 
right? Mm -hmm. So we think of the third world as a kind of emancipatory, utopian idea of how to organize um, human connectivity in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is a sort of lost international. Of course, we know that that was a failed project, not only because it was deeply masculinist and elites, and it was the, you know, the role of these elite male um, third world figures. And uh, we know how um, the end of the Cold War played out and what yeah. we're experiencing the vestiges of now and this renewed Cold War moment that we're experiencing in the 21st century. But, you know, that those conferences of the non-aligned movement that followed um, Bandung are often willfully suppressed in historical accounts of the Cold War period. And, you know, I turn to Lisa Lowe, I quote Lisa Lowe, who says that forgetting suggests um, forgetting the, the, this non-aligned movement exemplifies a persistent disinterest in creative forms of multilateral solidarity that refuse to center the priorities of the global north. And right. I think that's such a prescient statement because it's precisely what I think this move towards minor transnationalisms, towards South-South exchange, toward all of the work that you know those of us who are invested in this, even from the, from the belly of the beast, the heart of the empire in the United States, are trying to do is to try to resurrect new modes of internationalism for the 21st century in order um, both um, as a kind of abolitionist and decolonial strategy um, to to address the violences of the nation state form right like the idea of the nation state is a failed concept more generally and so i've been you know informed by queer and feminist post-colonial sort of disidentifiatory embrace embraces of the bandung moment um, not simply as a kind of failed anachronism but as an index of a still felt and yearned for project of liberation and so part of what i'm trying to do in the essay is say that stretching an ear an ear back to bandung allows us to hear something different in the sonic trace of MIA, even as we reframe Bandung from past failure to felt futurity. Um, so catching bird flu, you know, my idea of like bird flu feelings is about this kind of utopian inhabiting of a world and time, a restructuring of a relation to these complex histories in the future so that we can possibly go somewhere that exists only in our imagination, as Robin Kelly beautifully states. So it's a utopian strategy. It's uh, a not yet here in the way of, that my mentor, Jose Munoz, talks about. Um, mm -hmm. But it's to say that we can actually resurrect these historical archives and do something differently for, with them um, in service of the future, if we listen differently, if we situate ourselves differently in relationship to those archives. Yeah, yeah. And it, it means that this this kind of archive is still helpful in, in this imagining these futures to come, right? And failures are helpful. You know, that's the work of Jack Halberstam yeah. and other people who are the queer, you know, um, the queer art of failure is that, you know, we can learn a lot from things that didn't work out, that didn't pan out. These kinds of radical experiments, prefigurative strategies that people have employed over time that haven't led to the, you know, the revolution to come, right? But that, you know, point us in different directions. And certainly in this moment, we need to be pointed in better directions and, and, and yeah. more hopeful and just directions as well. Yeah. Uh, speaking of learning from uh, past archives, so one of the things that because you are theorizing bird flu uh, feelings, and um, it's also you you when you write, you connect this to the outbreak of H one H five N one, and so one of the things that you talk about is this contagion effect, uh, yeah. sort of an effective mode, um, and you do mention at the time there was very much the contagion effect in terms of thinking about security, thinking about terrorism, right, and the mm -hmm. idea that there would be a contagion uh, from terrorist. Um, affiliations, right? Mm -hmm. um, today, we're thinking about contagion all over again in the context of the pandemic, 
Oh, right? yes. Um, oh, yes. Our ongoing pandemic. Um, so how would these previous forms of contagion thinking and the critical examination of those uh, forms of contagion thinking, um, how are they still felt today? How do we still see a potential for, for querying or rethinking how we think about uh, the logics of contagion today? This is a huge question. Of course, it is the question of the now, right? Because uh, we're, we're living yeah. in um, such calamitous, wild times. And, you know, one thing to say is that the idea of the contagion effect, which comes out of political science, and I, I trace it in the essay to some degree, has a very long history. The idea mm. of the uh, using biological, um, somatic, physiological, and epidemiological metaphors of the body to talk about um, dissonance, difference, violence has a very rich history. And in fact, there's a, a new book that's going to come out soon by a colleague of mine, Anjali Rasa Kolb, called Epidemic Empire, um, mm -hmm. that looks, that offers an epidemiological, what she calls an epidemiological reading of the relationship between contagion and counterinsurgency, counterterrorism. Oh. And mm -hmm. um, so there's a, lots of rich scholarship that's, you know, emerged. And I'm also reminded of the work of Neil Ahuja in Bioinsecurities, who um, offered us this really beautiful take on the intimacy of humans and animals in the long 20th century as a way of thinking through security discourses. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, this essay, MIA, it's like I touched on all of that and didn't fully elaborate in the space of 30 pages, certainly, but there's so much work in every direction. And of course, now we can't think about um, bodily vulnerability, social porousness, embodied um, interdependence, and the terror of contagion in the same ways, right, after the calamitous events of 2020. So what, what to say about this? I think, you know, in some sense, it's like we're living through the resurgence of the, of the most aggressive forms of the nation state model. Um, mm -hmm in the Trumpist era, right? Or really in the long 20th, long 20th century into the 21st century of war on terror moment, the, the emergence of the US empire is all about um, the power and totality of the nation state. And part of what this essay, the animating impulse behind this essay was like, can we think of things that exist beyond, below, within, and adjacent to the nation states? And, you know, we're, and I think we're struggling in this moment too, where we're also seeing the rise of proto-fascist and fascist and authoritarian regimes throughout the global order in the US and North America, certainly, but also in Latin America and Asia, that we have fascism and authoritarianism on the one hand, and then we have decolonization and abolition on the other hand. And those are that there's really no middle anymore. And I think part of why there's we, you know, the language of decolonization and abolition are so much on the tongues of so many people today is that we're realizing that we need to decolonize borders. We need to decolonize policing infrastructures. We need to decolonize um, nation states, right? Which would mean the end of the U.S. settler colony itself. Um, and that, you know, abolition is not just about the ending, the negative order of all these things, but it's about the co-constitution of new worlds, new worlds that are not structured in violence and harm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so... Um, we're, we're all those are really old questions, right? Those are those questions are as old as certainly as old as the United States and its founding, uh, but they are also very urgent questions. And I think contagion, yeah. you know, we can't just let contagion be the domain of the specter of things that we fear, uh, which is precisely how we are being forced to think about contagion. Now, contagion right. is also the 
the forms of fellow feeling that have produced the kinds of protests that we're seeing all across North America today. Right. right. Um, and so there is, I want to hold on to the kind of utopian, radical and decolonial uh, visions of contagion, even as we very much deal with and address the kind of material violences that the devastation of natural worlds, which is the reason why we have COVID-19, right, have produced as well. And so we have to yeah. hold on to that kind of contradiction. And I think that's also why we turn to culture and study culture, because it's never black and white, right? It's always about the gray. It's always about this kind of space. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and it points to the the, the standing uh, relevance of these kinds of questions, right? That it's, I, we might be in a moment, the the occurrences of 2020 in some way become a break where people are reflecting on all of these issues, uh, are adopting the kind of um, decolonization, abolition language, a lot more even in mainstream discussions. Um, But these are not new questions. These have been very old questions um, that have been rearticulated through different moments in different ways, sometimes in failed projects, but learning from them and building on them and refracting them has helps in some way make sense of this new moment and, and possibilities of where we can go from here. And artists and cultural producers play a really vital role in that struggle, right? Because, um, you know, talk about artists make the revolution irresistible, but artists also um, repopulate and um, bring sort of a lush uh, vision to our political imaginations when our political imaginations are constantly being impoverished by the dominant ways that we're forced to look at the world. And so I think that's why the role of art, radical art and culture continues to be quite crucial. And it's certainly, you know, it is the, the topic of my book manuscript, Insurgent Aesthetics, is very much about the world making power of minoritarian art and aesthetics, um, not only as a diagnosis of all the things that are screwed up in the world, but as offering us a kind of roadmap and, and designs and visions of future worlds yet to come. Right, right. So you pointed out that uh, in the move from the article to what became the book project, um, you moved away from sound, but you, you were still thinking about a lot of the same issues in, in visual culture. So uh, so I was gonna ask how you've built on this work since, and I guess the, the question is, how, how did it transform into what became the book project? Yeah, you know, I really I try to, um, I realized that the role of vision and visuality is so central to war making it is certainly true across the long 20th century from the you know early early modern period of of, of war making around war as cinema war as a, as a theater right as something that can be visually captured and thus dominated and obliterated i wanted to talk about the complexity of visual epistemologies in the book and so part of what i did partly what i did is i turned to a range of visual installation and performance and multimedia artists who were doing interesting work with visuality, but then also displacing visuality and and attending to these other sensory conditions of touch and tactility and the haptic. I guess I continue to have this durative interest in the sensory and trying to understand what I call both the sensorial life of empire in the context of the book, but also the way that artists are manipulating the senses and our sensory states in order um, to produce kind forms of dissonance that get us to think differently about how the world is structured. Um, so that's that, I think that would be the, the way, the through line between this standalone article um, that then didn't at all find its way directly in the book project itself. Right, for sure. Um, anything else you'd like to mention that I haven't asked? 
Well, I have to say that, you know, I was trying to look up what is what's MIA been up to recently. I used to be a, a very frequent watcher and listener to her work back in the day, and I haven't as much recently. But I did discover that she's uh, the most recent uh, sort of provocation and controversy is that she's come out as an anti-vaxxer in the context of COVID-19. And that she said, quote, if I have to choose the vaccine or chip, I guess talking about computer chips that they're going to insert in our brain soon. She says, I'm going to choose death, right? So speaking <laughs> to her millions of fans on her social media platforms. And I think it's, uh, you know, not, it's not not in keeping with um, her sort of <laughs> glib take uh, and, and longstanding paranoia about state surveillance and, and forms of repression. That's, not, you know, there, that kind there are some uneasy, bedfellows or strange bedfellows we might say between anti-vaxxers and people who have a kind of libertarian disposition and people who also have a critique of u.s state violence and warfare and right. surveillance so right. uh but i think it's a reminder that these pop cultural figures and celebrities even as unique and interesting and singular as mia continue to produce contradictions that are worth teasing out and mapping and um and they they offer us plenty of plenty of material to think through the now. I would say. Uh, Ronak, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Juan. This has been quite a pleasure. Thanks for um, having me, and thanks for teaching this work. And um, good luck to all your students and riding the wave of this fall. This episode of the Global Media Cultures Podcast was produced by me and edited by Alan Yu. Opening sound by Pottington Bear and closing credits music by Cloudmouth. This project is supported in part by the School of Arts, Technology, and Emerging Communication at the University of Texas at Dallas. The Global Media Cultures podcast introduces media scholarship about the world to the world. I'm Juan Yamas Rodriguez. Thank you for listening. <laughs>